Welcome to Brands in Action, the podcast that asks the questions every brand should be asking. Today, we re-welcome our guest, George Tannenbaum, founder, chief George officer, George Co. LLC, a Delaware company. In January 2020, after 38 years in the traditional ad industry, George was thrown out of his big agency job for being old. At that point, he founded George Co. to do things differently from how they were done in the agency holding company world. George Co. started with a simple premise. Every client deserves to work with a founder. And another simple premise, that George Co. brings something unique to clients and that a few clients deserve to, quote, work directly with me, unquote. Since it started, George Co. LLC has worked on everything from some of the world's biggest brands to pre-revenue startups, primarily doing that most important of advertising jobs, defining who a company is and what makes them different. They work hard, they have fun doing it, and they get repeat business. If George keeps doing this for another 38 years, he still won't be too old. George is also the daily author of the advertising blog, Ad Aged, which you should read every day because you will learn things. Re-welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? Oh, well, thank you for having me, David. I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm not just saying that so I sound like everyone else. <laughs> well, listen, man, you're our first return guest. And I'll probably be the last, but uh, <laughs> we'll do our best. I've had this idea for a while. I think you and I should check in every six months. That would be amazing. I really feel like we could make a living, us people, as like kind of bi-weekly chats, like old talk radio shows. The reason I, I would love to do it is I think... You have a 50,000 foot view of the industry that I think when most of us are sort of in, you know, it's that old Howard Gossage quote, which is, I don't know who discovered water, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't a fish. Yeah, 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 exactly. You can't see your environment when you're stuck in it. And you have some ability to remove yourself and look at it. And that's what your blog does every day. I think because third generation advertising. And, you know, so I kind of have a 60 year perspective from my father who was in it. Yep. And the distance that you need in a love-hate relationship, because you see things that you adore, that's why you keep coming back, and you see things you disdain, which is why you come back the next day. I don't play golf, but I imagine what I hear from golfers is, even if one shot out of 60 is great, you live for that shot. Right. And and I think that's kind of what we do. My favorite quote about golf is, um, you know what golf has in common with brain surgery? You can learn brain surgery. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today was your kind of the finger on the pulse of the, you know, I I think the topic du jour, which is AI. Yeah. And you had a front row for the development of AI during your time on IBM. And I, and I know that you have a lot of perspective on it and it's hard to separate the hype from the terror from the, you know, there's sort of a good hype and a bad hype around it. And I think either way, it's hype. And there have been economists and Gartner, the researchers, who have charted the hype cycle. Yeah. And there is kind of a semantic way that hype cycles go, whether it's NFTs, crypto, or the South Seas bubble in you know the 18th century. And this is following that pretty closely. Yeah. It has been happening for a really long time, including, you know, I think in the early aughts, if not the 90s, I think it was the early aughts, Bill Joy wrote that piece about it's going to end us. AI was part of what he was talking about. But that certainly got my attention back in sort of that time frame. I was like, oh boy. And then I read, uh, I think it was Ghost in the Machine, which also talked about the singularity and all of that, all of that stuff and and how that was coming, which by the way, in that book, it's supposed to be here already. (laughs) You know, know, the truth of the matter is, 
I live in New York. New York's been running, you know, off and on for 400 years. It breaks down when there's rain. Yeah. As everything does. Yeah. Why do we think this will work this time? It's so fun. So talk about your experience with AI. Give me your bonus videos on that. So, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I, I don't know how to code, but I was somewhat present at the creation of the launch of IBM's Watson. And, you know, we heralded the advent, let's say, of the cognitive era where machines could see things that people could never see before and machines could actually think. Now, I think one of the big mistakes IBM made because they spent a lot of money on it or the big mistakes a lot of individuals in the AI business have made is we call it artificial intelligence. It should be augmented intelligence. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Talk about that. Like we don't call hammers artificial banging in nails. <laughs> you know, they augment our ability to bang in nails. We could take yeah. a rock and do it. You know, we could take another board to do it, but we have a hammer and that augments our ability. It doesn't do it for us. And that's a little bit what AI can do. Augmenting intelligence can help humans see faster and deeper, but it can't replace the connections that we can make. So the postmortem of the work we did on IBM Watson, was, which was considerable, was, and I'll quote here, I'm not going to say who said it, but we got out ahead of our skis. Hmm. And I think we're still ahead of our skis. I don't ski, but I know that's not a good thing. It means you're going to fall over. Yeah, and probably break your neck. So I just see these things about, well, these days, about every three months. It's either crypto is going to make money obsolete or NFTs are going to make Van Gogh obsolete. Or it wasn't that long ago when we we got one trillionth of a second of fusion, and that's going to make power plants obsolete. It's just not so simple. Yeah. I wish it were. There's a Canadian economist author called Vlakov Schmil. He's Eastern European, but he's been in Canada for 60 years, who wrote, this is how the world works. And all of us who want a green future and things like that, you know, the modern world still relies on oil, steel, ammonia, which is fertilizer, and plastics. And if you just walk outside, wherever you are, and look around you, that's what our world is made of. It's going to be really hard to eliminate that as quickly as we want to. Yeah. Even when you develop other forms of energy, it's still based on oil, for the most part. I mean, one of his examples is, you know, Germany has 40% of its generated power comes from renewable sources, but its reliance on oil has not decreased over the last 30 years. So they just added to it. Yeah, it's really, and maybe that's a parallel to AI because AI is great, la, 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 but we still need humans to put things together and to add things up. And I believe in technology. I'm not a Luddite. I am a don't believe the hypeite. Well, let me ask this though, because there's that concept of sort of big bang events, you know, that that have happened throughout our development of which... You know, I, I think you can sort of apply Moore's law to it's yeah. not just processing power, but you know, the Gutenberg press was merely a tool as well. But look what it did. You know, the the Gutenberg press had a really profound effect. Changed the world. Yes. Let me tell you something about the Gutenberg press though. Let me tell you something interesting. Yeah. Gutenberg press, say fourteen sixty, just to be yep. clear. Close enough. Yep. 
it wasn't until 1581 that the first book was printed that did not have the word God in it. Mm. So for 120 years, roughly, the Gutenberg Press essentially replicated what copyists, scribes, and monks were doing. Right. You know, we didn't really have a substantive change. In th- and by the way, the first book without the word God in it that was printed was Machiavelli's uh, The Prince. Wow. You know, I understand about the change in capabilities, but the change in brain wiring takes a lot longer. That's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. I think that's something we need to kind of think about a little bit. You're right. There are Big Bang events, but, you know, I'm not 100% sure that they change us as fundamentally as, you know, maybe the futurists want us to. Well, would you say that the advent of the smartphone has changed us? I think it's rewiring us. Yeah, I think it's rewiring us. I know there's a book out now. I have it on my Kindle. I haven't read it yet. That is about distraction. It was just reviewed a couple of weeks ago. I'm looking it up now about distraction and how distracted monks were seven centuries ago, <laughs> you know, when they were scribing things. So <laughs> you and I are probably wired similarly, David. You know, when I was young in the business, I grew up probably like you did in a pre-planner uh, era. Oh, yeah. And I got ahead somewhat as a writer because I always had an almanac in the office. So if I wanted to find out an esoteric fact, I could find it out faster than anyone else. Interesting. And, you know, I'm all for the smartphone, though I must say I just got back from vacation and I was Googling dumb phones because Mm -hmm. I felt too... Handcuffed. Yeah. The book, by the way, that I mentioned is by someone, I don't know if it's a man or a woman, called Jamie Kreiner, and it's called The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction. Part of the point there is we think everything is new, and very little is really new. It might be faster, but very little is really new. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. You know, that uh, um, an interesting story around the Gutenberg Press. There, I read a book earlier, well, late last year, called Power and Thrones by a guy named Dan Jones. Who oh, was, I think I recommended that to you. You, you might have. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And it's a medieval history from the year 400 to about 60, to basically the, the Renaissance. It's amazing. Do you remember there was a story about the witchcraft hysteria basically was the first sort of viral event that happened from the Gutenberg Press because there was this kook who was writing all of these treatises about witches being everywhere and he took it to the church and they said, you're a kook. No. But he, what he did was he went and had them all printed out and distributed. And they started to distribute and spread across Europe into the Americas, finally, in the 1700s. And it became this worldwide hysteria. Well, global at the time. We'll call it global at the time. Global. Yeah. Imperially global. And I found that to be really, really fascinating because, again, if I have my crackpot theory about Moore's Law, which I've said on this podcast before, being more about more than just about processing speeds, that actually it feels like there's some kind of Moore's law that that happens over a quickening in society as well. Yes. It sort of takes your your analogy of of uh, it taking a hundred years before the Gutenberg press really started to produce new ideas. That might be months now. That might have turned into a year. Right? Yes. Not to drop names, but Peter Drucker wrote an article a long time ago that I've carried around since 1999 called Beyond the Information Revolution. And his thesis was that a technological breakthrough 
takes a long time before it lines up with a functional breakthrough. Mm. So one of the examples was this was 99 he was writing. If you remember back then, we had CDs in our Macs that would replicate Encyclopedia Britannica, but it wasn't really a new kind of thinking or or researching. Or, you know, he talks about in the coal regions of the UK and, and I guess Germany, there were carts on rails since about the 1600s because it made pulling coal out of the pits easier. And the steam engine around 1780, 1790, but it wasn't until about 1820 that they put a steam engine on a cart with rail on rails. Mm. Fusion takes a time. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. What do you think AI does well? So your brain, my brain, most people's brains do three essential things. If you don't have these three essential things, you're not really a functioning human. And I'm not being nasty or elitist or anything like that. You have to be able to take information in, you have to be able to store it, and you have to be able to recall it. That's what our brains do. That's what computers do too. They can hold information, they can organize information, they can recall information. Now, the fourth kind of strata, I think, and it's where creative people excel. And by creative people, I don't mean copywriters and art directors. I mean people who they can access storage in their brain and match things together that don't belong together. So those four kind of strata, computers and AI can do that really well. So I I think AI does that really well. And there was a, I know you're in Raleigh. When I was launching Watson, there was a a professor who was interviewed on from, from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who was interviewed about Watson and detecting cancer. Now, you can load 100,000 breast MRIs into Watson, into any AI, and it's a pattern matching machine. So if it sees an anomaly in MRI number 14,932, grows through 70,000 more and sees one then, it could say, well, this is the cancer. This is the thing that looks like cancer. AI can do that better than we can. And very quickly. And almost instantaneously. That's a giant advantage. But I think then to know what to do, how to treat it, how to maybe spot the anomaly in the first place, it takes that combination of man and machine. And it takes tedium and sweat. I kind of fundamentally believe that. Like we could say, you and I could, just for the purpose of this discussion, agree that William Faulkner was the greatest writer ever. Yeah. And we could say, we want our copy for Amco transmissions to sound like Faulkner, and AI could turn something out, but I think it needs a moderator. It needs some, someone to curate it, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and that's where we come in. Well, this is, okay, so you're, you're actually going right into where I think the challenge is for us, because especially, you know, I, I have a smaller agency that's independent and goes our own way, but when I start getting into holding companies with stock prices where it's all about feeding the 40 million bucks up, right? Into the coffers of the few. Right. And so they do not, I mean, if you tell them that here's an efficient way, you can cut 10, 15% of your staff right now, work the lower funnel stuff, have a mid-level person curate that content. That's not even a hesitation of like, oh, why, why would we do that and save jobs? They're not going to care. And so does, it, does that create a role of where there's a, a level of curation now of AI versus 
what we used to have, which was 10 writers writing. I'm going to use the word content, which I yeah, love, I, and, I, love I and hate, right? So, but where, where, you know, social stuff, you know, where I, I can get, I can get 10 posts tomorrow and then I can AB test them in seconds, you know? Talk about where you see, like, am I wrong about that? Like, that feels like an economic pull that, that is, scares me more than the technology. I don't disagree with you. My only hesitation, and having been in big agencies for 98% of my career, except for the last three years when I'm running my yeah. one-person thing, you hear a lot of, let's say, almost like Columbus-like thinking. Like, I've discovered a new world, even though people have lived in it for 12,000 years. <laughs> Yeah. Let's go back pre-AI, so six months, a year, two years. When five years ago, we, we could have been having this conversation about big data. And yeah. you know yeah. everybody was talking about the splendors of big data and how I know if, if David Baldwin parts his hair on the left side, I'm going to send him a 10% you know, coupon on yeah. a right-handed comb. And you're gonna, sales are going to peak because we're so freaking targeted. And I would say, okay, that's terrific. But if data is so damn smart, why don't you look through your spam folder and figure out why I'm getting ads? I live in Manhattan. Why I'm getting ads for gutter cleaning services. Right. (laughs) Or baldness cures. I have a full head of hair, knock wood. Or, you know, menopause treatments. If it's so damn good, why does everything suck so bad? So one of the things that's been happening, you know, I've noticed in, in the not in the trade press, because there's not a lot of press in the trade press, but in the Times and the Journal and the Post, the three papers I read, I read those three and The Economist basically as my my pig trow that I chew at. AI is going to make bots better. Now, let's just talk as humans, as users of bots and phone trees and, you know, the little things that pop up when you're browsing something and they ask you if they can help. Have you ever had a really good experience that feels human? Because I have never. In fact, uh, more, more, more often wanting to throw whatever device I'm on out the window. Well, I mean, just because we're advertising people and we're supposed to be supposedly agents for big brands and protecting big brands, I find these things are sales suppression devices because I get angry at the brands. Right. So, like, I get the power of it. But is it power to do something that's additive and valuable by consumers, not just cost accountants? Let me push back on something real quick, because I think you're making my argument more articulately than I am, which is it's not about the quality of the of the content, the writing, the music, the whatever. You know, AI, AI is doing everything now. It's the CFO wielding it in a way that goes, what do I care if it's good? I don't care. I'm going to get X percent return. This is the big data thing. Like they don't care that it's good. What they care is that they get a 6% return when they were getting a 4% return before, right? But sooner or later, they're going to get bitten in the ass. I've been hearing that for 20 years though. And I don't, I don't disagree with that. I just think you know, Lee Clow in Art and Copy basically said that truism, which is something to the, I'm going to murder it, but 95% of everything created is crap. Yes. And it's that very small percentage of things that are really good. There's no difference between that and AI. Like there, there are now music sites where I can get AI music and just pay the site the rights for that. Now I own it and I use it and I've cut out literally 15 jobs from right. that thing. And do I care 
as the CFO of the brand using that music, that the music could be a little bit better if it was made by humans or, or a lot better, even a lot better. I don't care. I don't care. Yeah, I guess. And maybe this is I'm, I'm coming at the question in another way. You know, you and I have founded our livelihoods that people do care. Right. And I remember when, and this is a metaphor, but I remember when magazines started falling by the wayside, you know, so many went out and all that life and Newsweek essentially and newspapers and all that stuff. And I remember something that stuck with me, which was there's always going to be readers and this is snobby, but there's always going to be readers for like the New Yorker and Atlantic and their and New York Times. In fact, their subscriptions are up. There's always people, and our children might lose that, but for now, there's always people who want a little quality. Like, we don't want to go into a fast food environment, get bad service. We'd like a little something extra. And I don't want every content experience, let's say, for lack of a better word, to feel like spirit air, <laughs> you know, where, where I'm, I'm deflated and beaten. Yeah. You know, there's a great art historian who, who taught at Yale, and I'm going to butcher the quote. His name is Vin Scully, not the sports announcer. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Scully, sorry. Uh, so say, what are the odds of that? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, he, he wrote a little thing about when the great Beau Art Penn Station was torn down in New York in the 1960s, early 1960s, you know, in the age, the height of the age of the automobile, before maybe we saw the unintended consequences, which was, was lead in the air and clogged cities and whatever, death of cities. And he wrote about the new Penn Station versus the old Penn Station. And I think about this all the time as a metaphor for what we do, which is people used to enter the city and they felt like gods. Now they enter the city like rats scurrying around little hallways. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I feel that way with what brands put out there. I mean, yeah. if you read the comfortingness that came from old VW copy to some of the kind of platitudes that happen today, one, I feel like I was introduced to a product by a friend. And one, I, I just feel lambasted and yelled at. Right. And I know we're getting off the topic of AI, but but I think it's still a human to human business. I think we couldn't be more talking about AI. I, okay. I think I'm devil's advocating it, by the way. I'm a thousand percent with you. But I want to keep devil's advocating because yeah, no, that's good. This is it's yeah, fun too. I think the issue is that we're in an industry that squeezes efficiency at the expense of creativity versus and often to win awards, even when it's creative. So you, yes. you almost have to take out like the really great work sometimes, like almost take that out of the equation because no one saw it. Right. And so if you really look at what's happening, we're down to 99% of everything is crap in the ad industry, in the, in the ad milieu of what right. we're talking about. And so I think that's going to happen everywhere. That said, you know, if I look at entertainment right now, the movie industry is taking a huge hit. Entertainment, there's never been more in the history of mankind. And so much of it is really fantastic. Yeah. Right. So much of it is good. I mean, Netflix Say what you will about all these streamers, so much of the content is fantastic. It's fantastic. It's better than movies, you right. know? But I, I don't know that the industry is that interested in that compelling connection with another human as they are with a percentage of response. And AI is better at that than we are. 
aggregating it. I agree with you completely. I just think there's always going to be a market for good work. Always. Agreed. You know, I'm an independent. You're an independent. We're not beholden to stockholders or boards or NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange or anything. And the way I look at it, and this is very negative about the holding company industry, but it's hard not to be negative because many of the industries that we grew up with or many of the sectors that we grew up with have been afflicted by this. So the metaphor that I'll use is I was born in 1957. Every town had one or two hardware stores where if you were putting up shelves in your garage, there was somebody there who could advise you on the right tools and the things right. right. And even if you were relatively inept, like I am with tools, you could roughly figure things out. And it would be a fun conversation, by the way. They would lo- they'd be into it, right? Yeah. And they'd give yeah. you pointers and they'd, you know, make sure you do this, you know, and they'd tell you little adages like measure twice, cut once, that sort of thing. You'd leave it a better person. And now you go into Home Depot you can't find any help and you can't get any advice. You can't even find a person and you can't get any advice. I mean, that's directly what the ad agency business has become in the years that we've been in it. You used to have personal relationships, advice, why, an arm around your shoulder. You and I visited factories when we were young. We saw how things were made. We understood the consumer. I'm not just talking about a focus group or two. We understood the consumer and we spoke to them on an empathic level. And now, now that availability is a capability, that's why every commercial ends in people dancing because we don't know the customers. Right. <laughs> so part of me feels like, fine, go to Home Depot. I still need to talk to someone, even if I'm just buying peat moss, because I don't know. And I think there's a lot of people who, who have money and it might be you know, some version of the 80-20 rule. We might be the 20% who touch wood have 80% of the money, but we mu- we want a little more for our money. We want a little grace, kindness, appreciation, right. not thank you printed at the bottom of a cancer-causing receipt. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, come again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you, coma again. Um, yeah. yeah. So true. Let me now jump to the other side of it, because I think one of the I'd like your reaction to this, to a statement, but I wonder, I've been saying for a long time to agency owners that I know, especially independent agencies, what you don't want to do right now is be caught in the middle of the sort of mediocrity. You either want to be great or like really good at the bottom funnel, like be a master of one of them. Don't be in the middle. If you're in the middle, you're screwed because you'll never out middle the the holding companies. And you, you know, it's hard enough to outgrade the sort of work that's done for the award shows. You just, it's very difficult. So one future for agencies, and especially agencies like mine, but all agencies, is what if we actually do become curators of the bottom funnel, but creators of the top funnel? So is that so bad? Like, is that so bad that we go like, look, I'm going to use AI to get my bottom funnel call to action stuff, but I'm going to base it off of the insights that live up on top? Yeah. And I think that's a real opportunity for any agency. And we're, we're, actively exploring that as as Baldwin and right now of is there a way to do that that makes it more efficient but it has to come from the context at the top right it has to come from the context of understanding people a great brief a great strategy 
which is, you know, ultimately understanding people and coming up with some way into the conversation that, that leaves them additive with, with some knowledge. Is that so bad? I mean, it's funny that you say that because it's something I've been wrestling with as an independent, because a lot yeah. of what I do, most of what I do is more about what a company stands for, how it should speak, than producing I don't produce ads anymore, basically. It's what's your deportment? How do you want the consumer to see you? What do you do rather than here's another 728 by 90 with a click now button? And so I build essentially, if this isn't too pompous, I build the platform. And since so many clients now have taken their business in-house, it gets turned over to the in-house agencies, which are meant to be cost-effective. Yeah. And- I think they put the emphasis on cost rather than effective. And so part of me wishes, and I've tried this a few times, I've never gotten a taker. I'm just a one guy shop saying like, here's the platform. Here's 10 prototype ads. Keep me on retainer so I can ECD the output of your agency, your in-house agency. Because what we're really protecting or trying to protect is human to human communication. And, you know, often that seems like where 98% of the work fails, that it doesn't have that discordant, but human tone. Yeah. And I say discordant because it's not a cliche that we've heard a hundred times before. And so it might strike someone as funny and the kind of, economic model of advertising is if it's different, it's not good because it's not efficient because different takes a longer time to get to. Yeah. So part of me says, you know, by getting to efficiency, we're squeezing out difference and making different, making noticed. And that's always been the hallmark of communication. Yeah. So I don't think you can have maximum efficiency with humanity. It's one or the other. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So let's project 10 years out. Let's say that AI doesn't uh, evolve at all. You know, it, it is where it is right now. To me, it's garbage in, garbage out in a lot of ways. Where Where is the ad industry? Where is AI in its sort of um, pie chart as far as creators, as, you know, the, the creator pie chart of, of who's doing work? Where does AI sit in the next 10 years in your mind? I mean, I think it's going to dominate a lot of the industry. And you know, I think there will be a lot of people who are even more turned off by the messages they're sent because it's kind of like, um, what do they call it? Microplastics in our drinking water. Yeah. Um, you know, we get infected with each gulp. Yeah. And then you and I kind of in our dotage will be in our rocking chair someplace and we'll see a brand new Apple spot and we'll go, God, that's great. Yeah. Because it has humanity in it, or a movie, because it has humanity, or a painting, because it has humanity in it. And we'll say, why can't we do that? Well, there's a reason we can't do that. We don't want to. Yeah. You know, so I think that's always been the struggle. It's been a struggle of cost and quality. I mean, I can tell you, I mean, literally, David, 20 years ago, I was asked to lead a pitch at an agency for United Airlines. And very little of the pitch was the big Gershwin spot 
and much of the pitch was, you know, direct to consumer mail and email and shit like that. I knew in the pitch that it was going to be the direct to consumer stuff that's going to prevail. Yeah. And, And that would, that would make the decision. Yeah, that would make the decision. And I went to the president of the agency and I said, you know, we have one advantage over everybody we're pitching. We have a global network. And if we could say to them, well, the copy will start at 9 a.m. in New York. By noon, it's out in California. They'll work on it till three. Then it'll go to Shanghai. Then it'll go to Delhi. Then it'll go to London. Then by 9 a.m. So we'll have six revisions by the time that 24 hours goes across. I mean, that's not a prescription for great copy. That's a prescription for a fast and effective. Right. right. And I'm all for it. I mean, if that's what you want to do, but don't pretend that you're reaching people. With, right. with Don't pretend that you're making an emotional connection with people. Yeah. And go again, and I don't know if it's Lee Clow, I've heard it or seen it attributed to him, that the most valuable real estate in the world is a piece of someone's brain. Yeah. Let's just attribute everything to Lee because he's Yeah, Lee. that's good. <laughs> well, speaking as Lee Clow, um, yeah. and, you know, probably all of us and maybe all of us of a certain age and everybody probably has 10 or 12 of those little pieces in their head. Coke is it. Just do it. We have kind of an ecosystem of smiles around brands we like. Yeah. I don't know how many of those are generated by the new kind of, let's say, low cost marketing. Right. And I, I think those things are important, you know, because they build, first of all, they give you permission to screw up along the way and everybody screws up, but people have a residue of goodwill towards you. So they'll give you a second chance as opposed to they'll throw you out the first time you screw up because you've never built any relationship with them. Right. And I don't mean relationship in a modern way that we send you of course. a yeah, yeah. month. I mean, a real like it wasn't that long ago, pre the Elon Musk car crash, that people were lauding Tesla as a company that made it without advertising. Right, right. We all know what's happening now. He's losing his core elite buyers because of some of his views, and that the big five automakers between the Japanese, the Koreans, and and the remaining Americans are going to come out with an electric product and his market share is going to decrease. He's going to be like Tab. He's going to go down a point and a half every year for 30 years. Right. And not to, not to do a Kevin Roberts thing, but without that, those love marks, he's just going to deteriorate. Or that brand is just going to deteriorate. It's going to feel like a, uh, a Sunbeam vacuum cleaner. Like what? We talk about brands as a set of behaviors based on a set of values, right? Like, right. And, and some of that is advertising and design. There is no better case study right now in the behavior. I don't think it's his views. I think it's his behavior. Yes. Nobody would go, oh, he's conservative. I'm not buying a car. It's when he goes, hey, here's some conspiracy theories. And here's some just absolutely batshit crazy trolling going on. People go, wait, wait a minute. Like what? I used to love you and this, you know, and unfortunately he made himself the brand. And so now he's paying for it because his behavior is not based on the value system that he put out into the world. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it depends on, and we've had these sort of discussions. I mean, we as an industry for a long time now, I wrote it as a line in in a piece of copy not long ago. Are we thinking about the next quarter or are we thinking about the next quarter of a century? 
Yeah. Now, maybe you and I come from an old world and maybe a less existential survival world than today, but though we had a million Russian missiles pointed at us and Richard Nixon. Um, But I still think of brands as enduring structures, not ads, and not Tamagotchi, not whatever that was, the the thing that everybody was running around with their phones chasing. I think of brands as Nike and Apple and things that are really, again, foundational. And, you know, if you're only thinking the next quarter, fine, go to Vegas, put all your money on black and see what happens. Yeah. Well, it's it's pretty fascinating because you can look at the landscape of the brands who are doing it right. Apple to me is probably the reigning champion right now. Everything at the top of the funnel comes from this really amazing human insight every time. Yes. And then their lower lower funnel stuff is delightful. <laughs> it's delightful to read, but it imparts it always impart it finds a way to impart a story, a fact, a USP, whatever that is, sometimes multiple, all the way through. And I mean, nobody does it that way. I don't think anybody does it that way, that well, that well. I mean, even the highly functional sites that they're on, like they have a site called Apple Business Essentials. I don't know if you've yeah. seen that, Small Business Essentials. And I'm not a UI person, but it's so well done. Yeah. I feel like it's a well-organized, it's a store that's well-organized and I know where to get t-shirts. I know where to get a tie. I know where to get shoes. I know where to get laces and they're making it easy for me and they're being respectful. And ultimately I think it comes down to that. Are you respecting people? Are you not respecting people Yeah. as individual humans? And you know, I, I love technology. I mean, I, I worked in technology for a, a good portion of my career, but you still have to say please and thank you, <laughs> you know, and, and kind of mean it. And, yeah. um, you know, I think there's human semiotics that maybe Apple does a great job programming them into technology, but most people don't quite remember that. I think I read a... Um... There's a guy, I think his name is Grant Smith, I believe, but I, I grabbed a quote from him. He had written up a right. piece on AI, and I want to quote it because I think to me it, it's the perfect sort of ending. It is, uh, AI is, a, is the creative vending machine that so many people have wanted for so many years. Is it innovative? Procedurally, yes. Is it focused on enhancing a consumer experience? No. Will it create lasting brands and unforgettable work? There's no evidence. Will it create cultural moments that live rent-free in consumers' minds for decades? You bet it will. Just kidding. Hell no. Will it make money? Hell yeah, baby. It'll print it. To me, that's the fear. My fear is not the technology. My fear is not Terminator Judgment Day, you know, yeah. the robot uprising. I, I'm not really worried about that. And if, if that ever happens, I'll be long dead, you know. But I do think it, we're in an industry that's, that's about efficiency more than it is about selling. And I'm being harsh, but I think that's true. When you really get to the, the macro level, and I'd love your point of view on this too, but I just I look at the holding companies and it's it's sort of how can you be named network of the year for winning the most awards in business, you know? I completely, completely, completely agree. But let me ask you a question, David. Outside of and I don't know if I don't know you well enough to say this, but I'll I'll make a blank blanket statement. Mm-hmm. Outside of your mortgage and maybe helping your kids, there's probably four brands you spend a shitload of money on. Mm-hmm. something like a Verizon, 
something like a t- an optimum, a Time Warner cable. Yeah. Yeah. And then your gas and electric and probably your gasoline in your car, if you have a car that has gas. Chances are you hate all those brands. And I don't want to keep like living my life, giving money to people I hate. Yeah. And I kind of feel the same is happening, lumping together the alphabet com as the holding company, whatever it's called now. It's like our job isn't to do interrupt things that people like with things they hate. Right. Our job is to to be kind and to impart useful consumer information so people like the brand. I mean, I'm not changing that belief. I don't believe when Gary Vaynerchuk was in every square inch of my feed 48 times a day, I don't believe inundation wins people over. Only mm-hmm. inundation. Right. I was talking to someone about the demise of the industry. And we were talking about the insurance category and how like Geico has, you know, raised that category up to, you know, a certain level, you know, progressive now is doing better work now that flow is kind of gone. And then you get to Liberty Mutual. And I've had non-industry people talk to me about this saying how much they hate Liberty Mutual. Yeah. There's like a thing here that makes sense, a metaphor. The thing I'll say about Liberty Mutual is Seven years ago, I had never heard of them. You know, <laughs> yeah. Now they've yeah. inundated the airwaves, and yeah. I, I know Liberty Mutual, but it's not enough to be known. You have to be liked. Yeah. <laughs> I know them. You know, if I had to write down three, and you know, if you did an unaided awareness thing, I'd say Geico, Progressive, Liberty Mutual. I mean, State Farm, right. Nationwide, right. all those things have dropped off. And Liberty Mutual, I don't think either of you or, you or I had heard of five, seven, eight years ago, even though I think my wife and I had car insurance from them. They held no place in your heart or your, or your brain. Right. But yeah. now they have a place in my heart and the brain because they're always on and mm-hmm. I hate them. And that's the way I feel about Verizon. I was talking to someone about Verizon. I'm not busting Verizon, but since Ma Bell broke up, they probably spent $40 billion on advertising. Yeah. And I hate them. Yeah. And every time I see one, I, I hate them more. I don't know why that's good for a brand. It's only good for a brand if you're a monopoly. And that's what's happened with the holding companies. This is my whole point about it's about like Verizon's probably about churn, right? Like yeah. we have this much churn, so we need to bring in this many leads. Exactly. We need this, react, you know, AI is perfect for them. Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. But yeah. I think you and I, in a way, and I feel like as an independent businessman, a business person, I feel like I have two enemies or two things to conquer, I have to do better work than everybody else. And then I have to compete. And I'm sorry if this is getting like weirdly socialistic, but then I have to compete against kind of a dominant culture that says things should be cheap, fast, and ugly. Right. Because that's what's established in my clients' minds. Right. You know, and so not only do I have to do better work, I have to convince them that better work is worth it. And I would think whether you like it or not, that's what you're doing. Because a lot of people are saying, I don't want to pay money for that. I think we're at a point where we've mostly gotten out of that conversation because once that conversation starts in any sort of new business setting, we go, you know what? We don't think we're right for you. You're not going to like us. <laughs> so, and we, we will walk away. You know, so we've we've largely weeded that out of our out of our ecosystem. 
I have two, except when people complain about my prices. Yeah. You right. know, I can right. go so I can go here and here and you know, they're not charging that much. Right. And I go, well, you're not talking to a founder. You're not talking to someone who's living and breathing your brand. Yeah. I mean, there's actually something I just saw it. I'm not going to mention her name, but she's CMO at DDB and she's just posted this thing. I'm just sending it to you. A website for the uncreative agency, the world's first fully automated creative agency. Hmm. And like, I don't even want to look at it. I know it's going to be already. I'm just sending you the thing. Yeah. But, you know, if you and I were freelance aviators, we wouldn't be trying to replicate spirit air. We would try to do, I think, what Richard Branson tried to do is look at everything that sucks about the aviation industry. How do we make it better? How do we change it? I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to do in my little business. And I think it's what Apple did. They saw... 7,000 pages of instructions for working on a DOS computer. And they said, how can we make this simple? And, you know, I would imagine, you know, that's what a lot of uh, quote unquote disruptors are doing, you know, in different industries, but then they get bought. <laughs> and right. I'm, I'm happy to be bought, by the way. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I'm happy. I mean, you know, it's, it's really easy to, to scream about, you know, the corrupting influence of money, until someone offers it to you. Right. You know, I, I think you and I maybe were naive pragmatists. I believe we can do a better job that's more important. Naive pragmatist is a fantastic description of me. That is sure. Yeah. We want to treat people with respect. It's manners in a way. Maybe those are quaint and old fashioned, but I don't know. I'm gonna stick with it until I can't pay the rent. Well, I will I will say that I don't know if AI AI doesn't care about that. And the question is that money running AI doesn't care about that. And so it's up to, I think there's there's a whole raft of like really fantastic independent agencies that have popped up in the last five years. And it's up to all of us to show the value of AI and also the the lack of value of AI of, of where it can happen. I think that's where we can really play a role as companies in creating the work that we do. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I think just like there's always markets for sit-down dining that aren't Sizzler, <laughs> you, you, you know, for an enlightened experience, and I don't necessarily mean expensive, I just mean with a little courtesy and kindness and respect, you know, I believe that's true in art, in commerce, in fashion, that it's details and humanity that make the world worth living in. Otherwise, why? Yeah, why? Can I read something to you? Yeah, absolutely. William Faulkner won a Nobel Prize in 1949. And, you know, it was just after World War II, essentially, and the Russians had just exploded their hydrogen bomb. And it looked like the world was on the brink of annihilation, kind of like today. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's talking about why he writes. And the whole thing is great, but I'm just going to read the last paragraph, which is a Faulknerian paragraph, but it doesn't have any 88-word sentences. I believe that man will not merely endure, he will prevail. He is immortal, not because he alone among creatures has an inexhaustible voice, but because he has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. The poet's, the writer's duty 
is to write about these things. It is his privilege to help man endure by lifting his heart, by reminding him of the courage and honor and hope and pride and compassion and pity and sacrifice which have been the glory of his past. The poet's voice need not merely be the record of man. It can be one of the props, the pillars to help him endure and prevail. Beautiful. It's pompous for an ad guy to say, I kind of believe this applies to advertising, but I kind of do. And I don't think AI can do that. It certainly applies to advertising that we love and that people love. Yes. Absolutely. There's no question about it. I can't think of a better way to end this thing on AI because it's about hanging on to our souls and making sure that those souls connect, right? Exactly. George, I, I, I knew this was going to be a fantastic conversation. Oh, right? I, I enjoyed it, really. <laughs> well, and we're going to figure out this uh, every six-month check-in thing. Okay. I, I'd be honored, David. All right, my friend. Thank you for being on the show. Have a good weekend. Thank you for having me. You too. This has been another episode of Brands in Action. Many thanks to our guest, George Tannenbaum. Today's show has been brought to you by Pony Source Brewing, who reminds you with our Lieutenant Governor's Fund for the Fabulous, don't be mean to people. Go to funforthefabulous.love for more info. Pony Source Brewing, drink about it. If you're digging the show, please give us a review and a like. It really does make a huge difference. Here's the call to action. Do it now! Production help by Tim Mislock and Nathan Nichols, editing by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell, and music by Medium Heat. All other help from your friendly neighborhood Baldwin and. <laughs>